This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are difficult to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. Please know that today, some of what we'll be talking about may be potentially upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. My subject today is losing a child, and my guest is Katie Murray. Katie is the mom of three boys. She and her husband together are co-directors of One World Bicycle Expedition. They lead bicycle trips through Thailand and Laos. Katie also teaches English as a second language in the Portland Public School System. Katie, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you're here. I want to start out uh, asking you about, about talking about this and to ask you, is it hard for you to talk about losing your son? Um, well, it's funny because it's something, uh, it's not hard for me to talk about in that I always want to talk about my son. You know, that's, uh, he died three years ago, three and a half years ago, and um, that's the only way I can keep him alive. I mean, one of, one of the main ways is to be able to share and talk about him. Mm. What, what's your son's name? John, C-H-A-N. Tell me a little bit about him. Oh, Johnny was amazing. He, um, he was always just really energetic and athletic, and uh, he was very smart. And I feel like especially in the last 18 months of his life after he was diagnosed, because we gave him so much um, good attention, you know, he had, he had really his whole family pulling for him, and it really seemed to bring even more out for him um, to make him, I don't know, he just got better and better, it seems like. Mm. So for you, it sounds like even though uh, for many people, I, I, we imagine that bringing the subject up or asking you to tell, you know, talk about John would make you sad or hurt you in some way. But what I hear you say is that actually you want to talk about him. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I think it's um, sort of a falsehood or a, a belief in our society. People feel like uh, when they bring up subjects like this that it makes the person sad. And for me, and I think for many people, it's it's not true. I mean, having your child die is so sad. And so I felt, you know, tremendous sadness for a really long time, and I still do feel that sadness. And to have someone ask me about it has always been a relief and a, a, a big part of healing and you know, if people ask me about it, and I, and they see sadness come up, it's really just that sadness having a chance to be processed or healing happening. It, it's not. It's not that they're making me sad. I mean, the sad thing happened already. You know, the mm-hmm. sad thing was having my son get cancer and die. It was. It's not sad to talk about it. I think sometimes people feel they're out of respect for you. They won't. They avoid the subject, or they won't bring it up because they think that that will help you cope or function through the day or something like that? Hmm, I think quite the opposite is true. It's really um, being allowed to talk about it is what helps me function through the day. Uh-huh. And, and when people, I, it's always on my mind in a way. I mean, you know, I still go through my day and have my jobs and take care of my other children. But there's a part of me that's always thinking of Chani and missing him. And, and it's just a great gift when I get a chance to talk about him. Hmm. I'm so glad we can do that now. So maybe you can tell us the story about how you learned he was ill and kind of what followed. Um, well, he'd always been really healthy and, as I say, very athletic. People are always kind of amazed at how um, developed he was as far as his coordination and, you know, riding a bike at, on his third birthday and things mm. like that. And um, But then he just sort of suddenly started to go downhill. Um, and it, it may have been coincidental. He got a tetanus shot at... Um, when he was uh, 
four and a half, he had fallen on a rusty nail, so he got a tetanus shot. And then within about six weeks of that, I just saw his health start to deteriorate. Um, he would get colds that would linger for, you know, two weeks. He would get, uh, one time he got ill with cankosaurs that went on and on and on, fevers for days. And my kids said, you know, I'd, I've always been sort of hands-off in terms of letting them go through their little illnesses and you know I feel like illness is a natural part of life but it just was clear that there's something going on with his immune system mm -hmm. so um, after going to various doctors we finally were able to find out what the problem was and at this point we were living in rural Thailand and uh, the doctor told us that we needed to move immediately back to the US for treatment in Seattle Washington at the Hutchinson Center um, and, and did you do that? We did that. Yeah, we moved in about three days' time. We packed up all our stuff. My son and I, my husband brought my other two boys later, um, a couple weeks later. And when we got there, they said this is a very rare form of leukemia. Um, it was AML, and it was AML M M6, which is extremely rare. And they said it's, you know, it's so rare we don't really have statistics to help you make decisions about chemo and things like that, but we feel like you've got to go with really serious chemo. So we did a... Two rounds of that, um, where you know, of course, he was in inpatient for those rounds of chemo. They each lasted about six weeks, and six weeks inpatient the oh whole yeah, time. Yeah, oh. and he got. I think he got about a month off between the first and second rounds. And were you living in the hospital at the time? I mean, you didn't Pretty even much. have a home in Seattle. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, we were lucky that we had a community of friends there. We actually just coincidentally again had lived in Seattle prior to that oh. for a couple of years. So. It was it was nice to just be able to come home to friends and people helped us get an apartment and get a kind of be able to function as a family. So my husband and I took turns sleeping in the hospital. And mm -hmm. the hospital only allowed one parent to stay in the room. They wouldn't allow his brothers, which was really hard for us because the boys oh. had always, you know, been together. And anyway, that was that was one thing that was very hard. But um, yeah, so we lived we lived very we found an apartment near the hospital, mm -hmm. and he actually did surprisingly well with the chemo. I mean, he still had the painful symptoms and the rashes and all the things that go along with really strong chemo. Um, but the doctors were always very impressed at his ability to handle it, you know, and remain strong and pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, and then after the second round, and, you know, they weren't able to say we really think he's going to pull through, but they really did seem to, you know, I, I think speaking to them later, they really thought that he was going to do well. Mm. Um, and then about a month after the second round of chemo and he was, he really looked well. He was running around and playing and we went cross country skiing and, uh, being a kid. Yeah. Um, they said, well, the cancer's back. And, uh, when, uh, there's a, oh, and I skipped the, <laughs> the bone marrow transplant. They really wanted us to have him do a bone marrow transplant. And that was a very hard decision because he seemed pretty well after the chemo. But, and as I say, again, there were no statistics to help us make these decisions, no meaningful statistics because the number of people with AML is so small. So even though he seemed well and that they seemed to have, be, did they say he was in remission at that point or they didn't use language like that? I think they said a cytogenetic relapse. So he, he looked like he was in remission, but if they, if with this really high tech testing that they can do to look at the DNA, mm -hmm. they felt that there was still an issue with his DNA. And that's why they wanted to do the bone marrow. That's why they wanted to do the transplant. And the issue is that if they, they want to do it as soon after the chemo as possible because they feel like, I guess, the historically, if they the longer they wait, the more cancer can build up and then the less likely oh. that the bone marrow transplant will be 
um, successful. So, so there was a lot of pressure to do it quickly. Yes, and part of what I'm hearing is that there was a lot of uncertainty that you were making mm-hmm. these life and death decisions for your child yeah. without the guidance of a lot of medical knowledge to help you know yeah. what you were even choosing. And that was really, really hard. That was really all along the way, and um, but particularly with deciding to do the transplant, that was very hard. And, you know, they said, we know we're asking you the hardest thing you can ask parents to do, and we know you don't have enough information to make this decision, but you need to make this decision within 48 hours. You know, they really... Mm. It was challenging. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. So how did you make it? Uh, with difficulty. I remember he was supposed to go in on an early Monday morning for the um, radiation treatment. Before they can do the transplant, they, actu- they actually have to go in and, as I understand it, kill your bone marrow, your own mm-hmm. bone marrow. So they do that through full body radiation. And it was, uh, so Sunday night, I remember calling the, the doctor we were working with at home and saying, are you sure this is the right thing to do? And yeah, it was really hard to right, decide. Radiating my, my boy's yeah, whole body. That was, that was really tough. That was a really tough Sounds terrifying. Um, yeah, but the whole, I mean, the uncertainty was just hard throughout. Things like just deciding what, what food, you know, what was the right diet. I mean, we were reading all kinds of books. And, right. And, of course, we tried to do all this um, in a less invasive way. We talked to lots of naturopaths and homeopaths and, and I think they all just felt like it was such a serious disease that they didn't dare to, to mm. take it on. They all mm-hmm. said, you really need to get back to the children's hospital and handle it that way. Yeah. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and we're on Safe Space listening to Katie Murray about her son, Chani, and his bone marrow transplant for leukemia. So it sounds like you went ahead and mm-hmm. he had the transplant. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. What happened after that? And he did really well with it. Um, and then... Uh, the nurse, he, part of the procedure is to have, um, or the protocol afterwards is to have blood draws to check his counts every couple of days. Mm-hmm. And one day the nurse called and said, well, you know, these counts are up and it could be this and it could be that, or it could be the white elephant in the room and, or the elephant in the room. And I said, well, what elephant? And she said, well, it could be the cancer rack. And that's what it was. So at right that Right immediately after the transplant? No, it was, um. I'm trying to remember. I guess we went back in March and the transplant was around Christmas, so... Yeah, mm-hmm. and at that point they said um, he's probably got less than two months to live, and you know if you stay here we'll support you with um, uh, what's the morphine and um, transfusions, blood transfusions that he'll need, but there's really nothing else we can do. So at that point I was ready to, you know, be a good girl and listen to the doctors and do what they said, and luckily my husband said no way we're going to fight this. Uh-huh. So uh, he's originally from Thailand. So we went back to Thailand, we took our family back, and uh, we fought it uh, with more natural vitamins and food and exercise and kind of more natural ways. Mm-hmm. And he was really happy to be back home in Thailand, my son. That was really mm. great. I was so happy we could take him back. Um, so Thailand was home for him. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And he, um, he did really well. He had really, he ended up living nine months, pretty, pretty healthy nine months before he mm. died. So there you were with knowing that you'd been given this death sentence effectively Mm -hmm. by his American doctors, Mm -hmm. choosing to not give that so much power, it sounds like, and Mm -hmm. to do this your own way. So how, what were those nine months like for you? (sighs) They were very hard. Um, I think I was just so terrified, you know, every day. I was just always afraid that he was going to die. I was so afraid. I mean, as all parents are, we're always afraid of losing our children, I think, and, you know, whether it's 
deep down or whether it's up in the front of the consciousness, but yes. I was really afraid that he would die. And, um, and my husband was a great role model because he just felt like, well, we're not going to focus on that. You know, we're really going to just decide that he's going to live and we're going to fight this and we're not going to give up. So I had to retrain myself. I had to learn to think that way. And mm. I feel like that, you know, I had to really do a lot of soul searching to decide that that was the right choice for Chani. You know, the best thing to do for my son was to to decide that it was completely hopeful and we could be, we could live with hope and we could, you know, do all we could for him mm. and not give up on him. Because I felt like if I had done it in the the way that the doctors in the West might have, or I, what I perceive as sort of the the American, you know, way, I guess that's not really fair to say, but the other way of doing it was just be to give up and say, well, you're going to die in two months and we need to discuss death and, you know, we need to say goodbye and talk about it and really mm -hmm. just give in. For me, it would have been giving in. Mm -hmm. So you, you really chose differently. And does that mean, did you talk about death with him? How, what happened in terms of actually we, naming it? We did. I mean, he knew we, re we read a lot about cancer and we read about, you know, well, about people who had stage four and then they, um, you know, they would have died if they hadn't done this certain regimen of juice or whatever whatever it was so he knew that that death was what he was up against um, but we just didn't focus on it we just felt like mm. it why focus on something that you know nobody knows the future we certainly right. didn't and the doctors didn't and there's so many stories of people who turn who turn around you know doc they get dire predictions from their doctors and then they actually do pull through mm -hmm. so we really felt like the right thing was to to keep fighting for him and mm -hmm. allow him to to fight. So it sounds like at some level choosing, uh, you chose hope, you, you made a really conscious decision. I'm guessing, did you have to keep making that decision? Oh, every day. <laughs> sometimes mm -hmm. every minute. It was really hard. Um, sometimes, you know, I'd get up in the morning and I just, there was, I would sort of go through a ritual of bathing in the morning and I really had to look in the mirror and think of myself as a warrior because it was that mm -hmm. hard for me. And I, that's not sort of, sort of part of my vocabulary, you know, previous to this, but it was just so hard for me not to give in to that despair and that terror and just decide I have to be here 100% for my family and I need to fight this. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I'd cry when I was taking my shower too. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> but So I, uh, what I'm sensing is that what you were really fighting in a way, I mean, you were doing all the vitamins and juices mm -hmm. that you could, but mm -hmm. in a way you were really fighting despair. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. very consciously taking it yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. summoning your strength like yep. a warrior. And I also think that I went into a bit, you know, as mothers, we know about going into crisis mode. You know, we know when our child has something, when they fall down and get hurt, we're able usually to stay present and help them. And it's not till afterwards that we might fall apart. I think that can be common. And I felt like I was kind of in that, that fighter mode, crisis mode the whole time. You know, I felt like, well, I'm going to, you know, I know it would be really good for me to cry about this. And have some feelings about it, but it's going to have to wait, you know, because mm -hmm. I really need to just just do this. All of your strength was being focused. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. And it was a long, from from his diagnosis until his actual death, how long was it? 18 months. Uh -huh. So as he did reach the end of his life, will you tell us a little bit about how that was? Uh, that was challenging. We, um, we had been, when we left Seattle and left the doctors there, we went to Bangkok um, where we knew of some uh, doctors with really excellent reputations who worked outside of what we call traditional medicine, who worked, as I say, with vitamins and um, 
juices and that sort of thing. And, um, and he responded really well to that treatment, but I didn't have enough faith. I, I think I thought it was a good thing and I thought it was helping him, but I didn't think it was keeping him alive, you know, per se. And, and one thing about Bangkok is it's a pretty toxic environment, uh, you know, as far as pollution. And, mm-hmm. and we felt like one hope for him was to get him away from, we felt like whatever caused leukemia, because there's no way of knowing. The doctors always told us it's just totally a fluke and there's no pattern. There's no way to know what caused it. But we felt like whatever did cause it must have been some sort of toxic, something toxic in the environment that caused his body to, you know, mess up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we felt like we wanted to remove him from any kind of toxic influences. Yeah. Uh, and we had a place out way out in a really remote village in the country, um, up on a hilltop. Actually, it was an incredibly beautiful place. So we wanted to be there with him. Um, so we left Bangkok, and then I think that was in that was in October, and he died in December. Um, so his last two months were there, and it was just a very intense time. I mean, every day was just, I feel like every minute was packed with uh, just appreciation for him and appreciation for our life together and fear, you know, that was part of it. But mm-hmm. but he was great. He, um, We have sort of a way in our family where we... we work through things which is he knew that when he was having a hard time that he knew that I could listen to him and he could process that like if he needed to cry or yell at me or you know sometimes he'd just say things like you have no idea how much it hurts or you know these things and he would know that I would be okay to hear all that and and it seemed like when he'd he'd have I guess and we call it a tantrum maybe um but to me it was really just processing all the pain he was going through and the difficulties um he just was so clear and so present afterward that it was, it was amazing. I felt like mm-hmm. he just became so, so much wiser. Mm-hmm. Did you see him in a lot of pain? Yeah, he had a lot of pain. Um, yes, at the end, a lot of joint pain. His legs, you know, that would mm-hmm. travel. The pain would move around. Was that was that one of the hardest things for you to see that? Yeah, that was hard. I think. Um, it helped that we lived in a Buddhist country where there's a certain um, understanding of pain. I mean, it is pain, but there was a way that he he was aware that even if there was pain in his body, his mind was still his own. Mm. So I, I think that kind of helped him not to be um, overcome by it. And, you know, I remember one time offering him some morphine because we had, we had the doctors even us morphine. And I... W- I remember offering it to him, and he said, "No, my mom, it's 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 not really pain. It's something else. I think it'll pass if you know if we can just sit here. You know, like he." And he was how old? Five then? Yeah, he died. Yeah, he was six, six, um, a little. Yeah, just six. Mm. Yeah. And um, I'd love to ask you about how it actually was when he died. Do you feel comfortable talking about that, or is that too much? Well, it was definitely sad. <laughs> it was yeah. really sad. Um, but it was also beautiful. Um, he, we were able to have him at home, you know, in our little cabin on the top of the mountain and he was in bed with us. And, uh, the day before he died, I believe he must've had a, um, I don't know if it was a hemorrhage in his brain or, uh, anyway, something happened the day before it looked like a stroke. I could kind of see him begin to lose control of his muscles. And, Mm -hmm. um, so that by the time he actually did die about 24 hours later, 36 hours later, he wasn't able to move his body at all. And mm-hmm. we were all sleeping. It was the middle of the night. And uh, I woke up and my husband was holding him. And my husband said, he woke me up. 
Mm-hmm. So it was quite amazing because uh, we believe that that Chani's spirit was able to, or you know, his pay, somehow he was able to wake his dad up, mm-hmm. even though he couldn't move. And, right. Uh, he was able to. We were able to be with him when he died. Mm, I'm so glad. Yeah. For all of you. Mm. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. I'm talking to Katie Murray about the death of her son, Chani, just after he turned six. So I want to shift now to talk about what it's been like for you since. It sounds like it's been a little over three years. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yep. So I think you've lived through probably every parent's worst mm. terror, mm-hmm. worst nightmare, the thing that we fear we wouldn't make it through. And mm. I, I'd love to ask you, what has helped you during this time? Well, I certainly didn't think I would make it through before he died. I always thought, oh my gosh, if he dies, I'm going to die. Um, mm. But, you know, I have two other children, so that wasn't, that wasn't an, an option. option. <laughs> right. Um, but what has really helped is just being able to grieve, just being really knowing that I can really let myself grieve and crying and, I mean, really crying really hard a lot. Yeah, I think I've spent many, many hours crying about it, and I feel like that's um, that's the only thing that's made it possible to go on and continue to live my life. And is it helpful for you to cry with someone, or mm-hmm. with yeah, definitely, definitely. <sighs> that's sort of I think the only helpful thing for me. Um, More than crying alone. Oh, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, I, it makes a huge difference to have someone there listening. And I've been very involved for a long time with. Uh, um, uh, peer counseling, and uh, I have so I've, I have listening partnerships where there's certain people that I uh, I get together with, and we just listen to each other, mm. and we trade time, and um, and a lot of that time, you know, I talk about Johnny. Mm-hmm. So that's been a great help to you. Yeah, that's been invaluable. Yeah. Is there anything that hasn't been helpful? You know, I think people, as we said at the beginning, often don't want to bring the subject up because mm. they're afraid of causing you pain, as mm. we already talked. But I wonder, are there ways that people do bring it up when they have the guts to that actually really is counterproductive for you? Um, yeah, I'd say, um, I mean, I'm always grateful when people bring it up. And I feel like sometimes I hear people say, maybe in reference to someone else losing somebody, and say, well, I just don't know what to say. And I always think anything is better than nothing. You know, it's just, it's so nice when people just say, I'm sorry to hear what happened or mm-hmm. whatever they say. Um, you know, when people say, well, I understand because my dog just died last year, you know, that's, that's not helpful. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but just having, you know, just t- people giving me the space to be able to talk about him and being able to talk about his death is really, or his life, you know, people ask me, well, what, tell me more about your son is just, is great. Cause mm. as I said, that's the way I keep him with us. Yeah. You mentioned before you have two other sons and I wanted to ask, how has it been to parent them? I can imagine you're here, you're trading nights at the hospital while Chani was in the United States, and you're aware of your other boys' needs. How has it affected you as a parent to have lost a child? Uh, well, I think, you know, they, they were amazing. When he was sick, you know, they really realized that he, we needed to put all of our energy toward him, you know, and they really didn't ask for any attention. Mm. Um, during those 18 months, they really were amazing at just being helpful and you know so I knew that after he died I'd have to you know <laughs> give him a little more attention um but that's one of the hardest things I mean it's hard enough to feel my own grief but to see their grief is just oh, that just rips my heart apart because they were so close um 
Mm. And that but you I couldn't know protect them. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. But I know it's so important for them, for me to be able to listen to them grieve. So I do, but mm. then I have to go call up one of my <laughs> co-counselors and cry. <laughs> yes, yeah, to yeah. help them with theirs. Yeah, I can imagine too. I know for parents, it's so hard because we all grieve in such different ways. Mm. As you've talked about your husband, it sounds like he was so profoundly helpful to mm. you, his, his clarity mm. about what you needed to do. And yet I imagine that your relationship has also been very affected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually relieved. I think it wasn't until maybe a year after my son had died that someone mentioned that couples who've lost a child, you know, that they encounter, that a lot of times they get divorced. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's why it's been <laughs> challenging. <laughs> um, it's hard. I think, you know, it's hard because uh, I think, you know, what makes us fall in love with each other is that the other person somehow makes us feel good and makes us happy and can make us laugh and those kinds of things. And when your child dies, nobody can make you feel good. And, you know, that's, that's, I think, you know, we've had to learn to appreciate, appreciate each other in different ways. That makes so much sense. I want to ask you also, you know, I think all mothers in some ways struggle with worrying that their children's struggles are somehow their fault. Mm. And I wanted to know when Chani was ill, did you did you struggle with wondering if somehow you had done something wrong? I'm not not rationally, of course, but I think it's it, you know this kind of mother guilt is so deep. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I still, you know, I still do. Sometimes I'll think, oh, that's what it was. You know, I shouldn't have whatever mm. it was. You know, sprayed for bugs or you know, there's so many. Yeah, I definitely did, and I still do. Even though I know I shouldn't, and people tell me, you know, of course you can't blame yourself, but it's really hard not to think that, well, if we'd done something differently. I I think I spent a lot less time thinking that way than I did Mm. before. I mean, I do feel like I've made, certainly made progress in that area. Mm -hmm. Right. It's sort of like this whole other layer of burden on top of something already so Mm. painful to have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to, in closing, I want to ask you a little bit. I know that you've been writing a book about the experience Mm -hmm. and you told me that you'd been writing him letters Mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask you to tell us more about that. Well, when he was sick, you know, you asked what, when we went back after they gave him the death sentence, the, I felt like the only thing that kept me sane was being able to go to my computer and just kind of, you know, have a cathartic experience of just writing everything that happened. So now I have a lot of, a lot of, uh, that written down and, um, and afterwards, it helped me a lot uh, to just write him letters. You know, every every journal entry started out, Dear Chan, and I would just tell him what was going on and how much I missed him. And, yeah, and it's been, it's been I'm really pleased that I did that because now it helps me, you know, when I, I can go back and read about it and say, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I don't think I would have remembered a lot of it. Do you still write him? I do less so than I used to. Um, when he first died, I wrote to him every day. And, uh, but now mm. it's really less and less, which I think is probably a good thing. A good sign. How is it for you to imagine those letters in print? Um, well, I think, you know, um, I, I just think it's such a hard role to be a mother of somebody, uh, you know, to a mother of, of a child who died, that if there's any way that I could be helpful, that it would be, you know, I'm happy to have them out there for people. On that note, I think we need to stop. Thank you so much for coming and speaking about Chani. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is the last episode of Safe Space for the summer of 2008. Next week, Chip Edgar will be returning to this time slot with Home Dad. If you would like to be in touch with Katie, 
or with me about future topics. This show will continue in some form in the future. Feel free to email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Coming up next is Caribbean Flava with Annie.